The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Yeah, don't it sound so epic? Horns are screaming, I ain't the one you want to mess with. Use a joke, I ain't the one you want to jest with. The battle's coming, you only got a few seconds to run. Welcome to Bengals Chalk Talk. My name is Matt Minnick. Joining me today from The Athletic is Paul Daner Jr. Paul, how are you today? Doing good, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you being here. Now, Paul is one of the best guys out there for inside information on the Bengals. Uh, honestly, there are a lot of really talented writers over at The Athletic, but if you are a Bengals fan, uh, a real true diehard Bengals fan, Paul's work alone is worth the subscription. Uh, so if you're not reading his stuff, uh, trust me, it's worth the investment. Now, that includes a piece that came out earlier this week on Joe Burrow and the Bengals' virtual offseason. Paul, you're a Cincinnati native. Uh, you covered the Bengals for a number of years. In all honesty, does this staff's creativity and ingenuity dealing with the most unconventional offseason of all time uh, does this strike you as a big change from what might have happened in years past? Well, I would say, you know, getting getting some of the old staff to not just hit reply all to emails would probably be a, considered a success. <laughs> so the embracing of technology and the ability to sort of work with it, I do think is is part of. I mean, that's part of anything and why you get younger organizationally um, like they did. I don't think that's necessarily a knock on the previous staff, which was older, but, you know, there is no denying the fact that, you know, they got on average 10 years younger when they, uh, across the whole staff, when they switched over and your head coach and your coordinators for the most part are in their thirties. I mean, you, there's a different, there's a different level of dealing with this that you're comfortable with, um, and willing to embrace when you're, 35 as opposed to when you're 60. I mean, that's just, that's a facts of life anywhere. So I think that that is certainly probably has played into their hands a little bit as an advantage, but I think across the league, I mean, most of these coaches and it probably would have been the same for Marvin staff as well are, are such intelligent guys. They, they would find a way to make it work for them. But yeah, I, you know, I do think it's an advantage in that they've kind of been able to embrace it and find ways, you know, to understand and connect with younger players, understand how they embrace it. Well, speaking of advantages, 
obviously they wouldn't let the cat out of the bag for a while, but I think we all knew that Joe Burrow was the pick and, and they knew that Joe Burrow was the pick for weeks ahead of the draft. Months. And yet they still had all this time <laughs> to be able to spend with him uh, in Zoom meetings in the pre-draft process. Do you think that, you know, the fact that those pre-draft meetings became more like you're talking to your player because it was the first overall selection and you knew you were going to take him. Do you think that that helped to facilitate uh, the Bengals staff to, to develop this offseason program? Yeah, well, I mean, look, this this offseason program was, before we knew that it was going to be virtual, was all going to be centered around Joe Burrow and the grooming of him and finding a way for him to be the most comfortable, as comfortable as he could possibly be when they opened the season. And, you know, the fact that they knew it was him, yeah, you better believe they were going through the team's offense and scripting plays and talking about things that he likes. To, for them, when they draft him, to show up with a playbook full of LSU stuff that he's comfortable with because he's told them these are the plays that he's comfortable with. He's told them these are the concepts that he's like. They've talked about things that he liked and disliked. I mean, y- you would be crazy not to use every possible hour that you can have contact with this guy to make that count for you and not just be about recruiting and, and learning, um, you know, trying to feel him out. Like, you, you know he's the guy. And the fact that they knew he was the guy, you know, you said weeks, months before he was picked. I mean, I, I think it was it was all but over in Mobile. I mean, we go all the way back to January. I mean, it was I don't think there was ever really a doubt. It was you know, when it was over. It was over uh, the moment that field goal went through the uprights in Miami. It was over. Everybody knew that Joe Burrow was going to be the guy and the Bengals were going to have a need at quarterback. It was just a matter of going through the actual process at that point. There would have been things that could have popped up, but you have to use that time. And they knew that's how they needed to use that time. And I think they, they did. And, And I think that's why they feel as comfortable as they do today with where he's at and, you know, him, his understanding and getting some mastery of the offense as they do, because they felt like they used every second possible to focus on that. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned before, you, you wrote an article uh, that talked about the, the pre-draft process and free agency as well. And I mean, it definitely uh, seemed from, you know, the reports that you were getting from inside the front office that uh, they were pretty well committed in the fall to burrow. Um, now what really stood out to me uh, about your recent article was how the coaches talked about what they wanted to accomplish. And it really it really stood out. It was like like t- how teachers talk about a lesson plan. And I don't I don't I'm not sure how much you use the word teacher in the article, but I know I listened to your to your uh, your podcast and your interview with Brian Callahan and I think he said teacher about a dozen times. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's really what coaches are. I think sometimes we lose that when we get to the NFL level, uh, even in, in you know, Division One college football, sometimes they lose that. But did this approach uh, from this staff in, in 2019 seem different uh, as far as how they were teaching players, how they were going through that process uh, in practice than the previous staff? Yeah, I think that's a great observation that you made is, is I do think this staff – more so views themselves as teachers and and you know i think 
there was a lot of, I mean, shoot, Marvin Lewis famously, BNF and pro, right? Like there was a, these guys are pros. They should know how to do everything was, was a, and treat them like that was a big part of, of Marvin's philosophy. And there was anything wrong with that. He won a lot of games with that philosophy. And maybe that, and I do think that's something that generationally has changed is younger players need whatever you want to call it. What, teaching uh need to be brought along a little more need to focus on that you know keeping it feel like that college has whatever you want to however you want to look at it it's clear with this staff a big differentiator is how much they view this to be strictly about teaching and finding ways to connect with younger players through how they teach things and the method in doing it and not just in the material and how to be a tough football player and things like that um and so I do think that is a big difference with this staff and the old staff. There's, I think there's a clear ad, advantage in that they have a better idea of how to connect with younger players and teach younger players um, than, than, the old, than the old staff did. And again, I also think that's just part of getting younger as a staff. You just that's just a more natural thing for you if you're Zach Taylor, you know, how to really connect with a guy who's 23 uh, than it is for Marvin Lewis when you're, you know, when you're when you're in your 60s. So in coaching, there's always a time constraint. There's always a, a pressure deadline for everything that you're doing. And I mean, it's, it's as simple as, you know, the the play clock. Um, but it's everything's that's one thing I loved about coaching was that you didn't have a lot of things that carried on for months at a time, like you do in a lot of other jobs. Uh, it's, it's, Hey, the ball snapping at, at, at noon on Sunday, everything's got to be good to go by then. Mm-hmm. So when you, uh, you know, when you consider that and now we, we look at practice in the off season, uh, and for practice, you've got plays that are installed. You've got plays that you're going to run. Uh, in practice, and you have to have all that stuff done in your meeting time with your players ahead of time. Not this off season, all right? There is no practice. And and I thought that it was interesting. I'm not sure if it was you or, or Jay Morrison who uh, made this comparison on, on your podcast, hear that podcast, Rowland. But um, since Burrow's not getting on the field, it's essentially like a, a miniature version of, of Carson Palmer's rookie year. Mm-hmm. That there's not really that pressure. You can slow down. You can teach him. Now, do you think that being able to, to teach in, in that way and to not have that, that time constraint on it, do you think that that balances out a little bit with not being able to get Burrow physically on the field to actually see things and make mistakes live? Yeah, and I, I thought when I, I, when I talked to Dan Pitcher, the quarterback's coach, and, and Brian Callahan about this, and I, to kind of put that in the story, too, about how this is really an interesting case study because no one's really had to do it this way. You know, no one would ever do it this way because it's just, of course, you're going to want to see him on the field and get him learning on the fly. Like, of course, you're going to do that if you have that opportunity. You would never hold someone out of practice. It's crazy. But the idea of setting the brain as the foundation first to have a mastery of everything that you're supposed to be doing when you're out there before you actually ask someone to go do it, perhaps that could be a way to more efficiently or you know, expedite the process of really figuring it out rather than figuring it on the fly and failing and then more worried about setting the script for the next day's practice than about really having long conversations about why you do things and how things work, especially for a guy like Burrow, who, you know, is known for his analytical brain and his knowledge of football, you know, growing up and 
going through two great programs and a son of a coach and, and all that stuff, like to really be able to have that process and that learning set before he ever takes the field, maybe allows him to go out there with more confidence and always feel like he had great confidence from day one instead of doubting himself. Maybe not. Maybe maybe just losing all the practices totally wipes that out, and he would have learned it just as well the other way. We'll never know, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out as a case study to see what he looks like when practices start compared to maybe what he would have looked like and what that means for how comfortable he is when they play the Chargers or whoever they play first. Yeah, it's interesting, and I we just have a new C- CBA this year, so it's – Probably not going to get done in the immediate future, but it would be interesting uh, if they added a virtual component to a regular offseason, like just to be able to have mm-hmm. a couple more meetings here or there. And I mean, it's a little less, uh, you know, certainly as opposed to OTAs and when you got guys that live in California and Texas and stuff, it's a uh, quite a bit easier for, for players to just hop online and, and do it. If you, if you made it a once a week thing throughout the offseason or something, but. Uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they, they do integrate that moving forward when we get back to reality. Yeah, you know what? I think that's a really good point. I I think that we're going to see elements of what worked or people thought did help this offseason used in the future. I just think, you know, it's like any situation you go through, these guys, these coaches are going to look for any advantage they can find. If they felt like there was some advantage and, and just the comfort that everyone has with doing them that way now after doing them for an offseason. No, you would never want to go back and do a whole offseason like this again. But you're right for a, a day here or two days there and people not having to travel, but being able to stay in connection, whatever that is. Um, yeah, I, I think it'd be really interesting to see if coaches do start using some of the elements of this to help them get more done in the offseason, even when they are practicing. You're, you're right about that. So you mentioned Dan Pitcher, uh, and he's a first-year quarterbacks coach, uh, promoted from within. Uh, was an assistant last year, and um, you know, it seemed like somebody that the that Zach Taylor had a lot of confidence in right away. He gave him some game, game management roles. So, in addition to Pitcher, though, you've got Brian Callahan and Zach Taylor, who are, are both really quarterbacks coaches by trade. Is there any indication of what that dynamic might be? And uh, I mean, is it? Is he going to be with pitcher all the time? Should we expect him to ha- be meeting once a week with uh, with Taylor and spend a lot of time with Callahan as well? Or yeah, I I think I think at this point, I mean, look, it, it'd be crazy. A guy who's a first year quarterbacks coach, and you have someone who's you know arguably would be one of the best quarterbacks coaches in the game today. If Brian Callahan were still doing that, but he's been promoted, I mean, it would be and and what Joe Burrow and him being up to speed means for the organization. I mean, it'd be crazy that you wouldn't have Brian essentially in that room, sort of as you know, a director of quarterbacks coaches almost, you know, I mean, sure. Brian and pitch, I think are working together in lockstep within that room. And Brian basically said, I mean, he spent most of his time um, in there working with the quarterbacks because that's where he needs to be right now. And, and Zach Taylor, I mean, I think he, he has taken this approach this year that is more of a withdrawn approach of, yeah, I, you know, he's not going to step in that room and screw it up. He, he trusts those guys to, mm. to teach it, to know what they're going to do. They come back and report to him. He's spending more time with the entire team this year. Whereas I think last year in his first year, you feel this need to do you, to know, do what you sure. know first. And just all you can do is get your grips around what you know 
and that was the offense. And he was really leaving everything on the defensive side over to Luana Rumo and that team. I mean, he did so much of that last year. And same with special teams with Darren. And I think there's still a lot of that. But not knowing, you know, you're still you're just so much feeling your way through your first year. I think he spent a lot more time focusing on the offense and doing that daily stuff. Now, I think he views himself more taking on the role of true head coach and more trust, certainly in Dan Pitcher, who he loves. And I think the previous staff loved. And he's a guy who's been overdue for this position for a long time and why they were comfortable when they re-signed with Alex Van Pelt, telling him that you can go on to a coordinator position if you get one because they they had pitch right there. So they felt they had a luxury in that Um so I, I think that's kind of what the dynamic will look like. A lot of Brian and Dan Pitcher working together with Burrow, with Zach Taylor sort of as the overseer, as as they, you know, as he should be. It's an interesting dynamic. And, I mean, just like with players, it, it never hurts to have too much talent. Uh, and, you know, you look at the the Eagles when they made a Super Bowl run a few years ago, uh, and they had, they had Peterson working with the offense, but they also had, had Frank Reich. They also had um, – uh, Press Taylor, uh, but uh, uh, another uh, uh, offensive mind who, who's uh, you know been involved in the NFL for a long time, uh, Filippo, There it is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how they all work together and uh, kind of how the coordinator duties are, are split up a little bit as well. Now, looking at uh, at some pass catchers, uh, Tyler Eifert is gone. Uh, the Bengals. Could have drafted a tight end. I think a lot of people wanted them to draft a tight end. Uh, but I think a lot of people forgot that they drafted one last year in, in Drew Sample, who we mm-hmm. saw a, no pun intended, but limited sample size of. And um, obviously, Siju Uzama uh, coming back as well. Uh, what do you think of, of the tight end position? Do you think they're in pretty good shape between those two? I, I think they're in better shape than people give them credit for. I, I think they used Tyler Eifert fairly well as well as you probably can but he was really a luxury for them I think it, it we know I mean if there's one thing that we did learn in the first year they'd really prefer to be an 11 all the time I mean they I don't mm. think that they're you know they're really as keen on the need to have a bunch of great tight ends they love guys that are jack of all trades at that position and CJ CJ really does not get enough credit for as good of a receiver as he is um, and he and he really has established himself as a pretty good run blocker. And people don't remember he was a huge key piece to them figuring out how to make that running game work at midseason last year. They started using him in different ways that utilized him, and he was really helping seal off a lot of big runs for them. And, and that was, I think, a big key to them figuring out how it all should work. Um, so you know, I I think sample they I make a my comparison for sample is this is. The way people talk about Jermaine Pratt right now, I think people would have been talking about Drew Sample had he actually gotten the chance to finish out his year. Sample didn't hardly play. They really saw him starting to turn the corner and be a guy in practice. You can see, you could see it in camp and he just was starting to figure it out when he got hurt. You know, Pratt went out there and people forget how bad he played. Pratt was not good, but he was learning on the fly because they knew that that guy just needed snaps. And by the last couple games of the season, he looked like a real guy that you'd be willing to say, yeah, starter next year. And I think you would have probably felt the same way about Sample had he been given that opportunity if he didn't get hurt. So I think there's a lot of hope inside the building. At least that's what they feel for him. They obviously have him very highly regarded. We know that by where they drafted him. So um, I, I think that position is probably in better hands 
than people get it, give it credit for. And partially because of the receiver position being so much better this year uh, than it was last year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you've got, you got Sampo and Uzama in there and, and yes, uh, we've seen Uzama make some plays in the passing game, but it's not like he has to be what Tyler Eifert was for the Bengals in the passing game. It's a different philosophy. And really when you're, you're in 11 personnel and you've got AJ green, you've got Tyler Boyd, you've got John Ross, you've got fan favorite Auden Tate. And now you're throwing T Higgins into the fold. I mean, how, like, again, this is one of those good problems to have. Like, how are you even going to get all of those guys involved next year? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the fun part for them. And that's probably where they look at it and say they're going to run even although they started to have a lot more success with the two tight end stuff at the tail end of last season. I think you'll see some of that. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think they would just prefer to have the receivers out there, um, especially when you've got the kind of guys that they have. that They feel like they can really pinpoint, you know, the sub packages that work for them because the what I think is really dynamic about this group is not just necessarily that there's five names that player people recognize and know it's that they all have really elite specific weapons that are not the same. You know, whether you're talking about AJ green, who is a one a does everything. Tyler Boyd has an elite work, you know, savvy in the slot and ability to get open. That is maybe as good as anybody in the league. John Ross has speed that we know is as good as anybody in the league. Auden Tate has hands and a catch radius that maybe are as good as anybody in the league. And then T Higgins, we'll see what he becomes. I mean, they think they view him as, you know, the next AJ green all these guys you can use in different ways and you can pick a sub package or play where you're trying to accomplish something where you can have, we need a speed guy on the outside. Well, you Ross is in on that package. Well, we need, we need more, more savvy. We need a big body guy for this place. Tate comes in when you have all those abilities to do those different things. You never feel out of place with that third receiver instead of the second tight end. And I think that's a big part of, why there's much more comfort in playing 11 personnel when you have those kinds of receivers and you feel like you can always find ways to get them involved because they'll have very specific portions of the playbook. Maybe John Ross is only in for 15 plays a game, but you he's in there for a reason. And hmm. maybe that's a lot better for John Ross than him playing 50 plays a game. I would argue it probably is. Yeah, that's a good point. And, I know, like, uh, you look at the, the the Patriots have had some luck in, in years past with guys who have struggled to stay in the field in other areas. So, you know, if you you make him like the, like they used Danny Amendola back in the day, mm-hmm. kind of a like put him in when you really need him. Maybe you don't even see him that much in games that aren't that important. Uh, but then, then you're able to preserve him, you know, and, and how great would that be to, to get deep in the season and still have – you know, have that John Ross option, you know, at the end of the year. Yeah, a lot like they did successfully, by the way, with Eifert last year, where they they, they actually stayed disciplined on cutting his snaps back instead of giving up on the plan two weeks into the season, not that I'm naming names. But, you know, actually being disciplined with it, keeping it limited so you can have him for those plays that you want throughout the year. If there's a game or two where guys are hurt in front of him, he's got to play more, sure. Then he plays more, but you, you don't want him to be playing a ton of snaps because of his injury history and because some of his limitations that he's shown as a player. So you were another piece uh, that I, I referenced earlier. Uh, could have been a few weeks ago. Could have been a few months ago. Nowadays, there's really no telling. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, it was dealing with 
Uh, it was a behind-the-scenes look, really, at the front office and really the whole offseason process from free agency to the draft uh, and even, you know, what the scouts were during, doing during the year. Uh, some real, you know, behind-the-curtain type stuff in there. Now, the Bengals take a lot of heat over the size of their front office. Mm-hmm. But from reading the article, um, it really seems like they had a plan and they went out and they executed it very well. Uh, throughout this offseason. So do you think that the Bengals can be the franchise we all want them to be without <laughs> adding substantially to their scouting department? What do you want them to be? <laughs> Super Bowl <laughs> champions? Uh, I, you know, I mean, that's probably the question is I, I, I think that they could use they they could use more in the scouting area, not necessarily like. You know, the line I tell everybody that I that I've heard repeatedly is I don't need more of these voices. I need the right voices. That's straight from Duke Tobin. He's told me that a million times. And and there that is very true. If you look at teams that draft successfully versus those that consistently whiff, is are you going to see significant correlations in size of staff? No, you're not. There's not like the the teams that have 30 scouts are not drafting significantly better than even the Bengals with their small scouting size. And I think, you know, oh, nine to 13 is proof of that. I mean, one of the one of the best runs of drafting that this I mean, the Bengals and certainly a lot of teams this league has seen. If you look at all the hits late in drafts and, and successes that they had there, it was it was an incredible. And that was with a small staff and a lot of other teams with big ones. So. How much does that matter? I, I don't know. You can always use as data becomes bigger, as analysis of that becomes more important. You don't want to be left behind in that area. And I think sure. adding more people proficient in that would only help them specifically on the scouting side of things. I think you still want the same voices they have in the room, in the room and everyone else locked out <laughs> for the most part. But I think you want more of the information that you can get certainly in that room. And does that make them more of who they need to be? Probably. I mean, I don't know how willing they're going to be to do that. I think they believe in who they are in their process. Um, so I don't know how much that's going to change. That's something worth watching over the next couple of years as, as big data becomes a bigger deal and, you know, teams hire more and more of those types of people if they'll follow that trend. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if they'll be exactly who you want them to be, but I think they can be good enough to, to win the games that you want them to win. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you look at that argument of more voices versus the right voices, the big thing with having more voices is that, the decision maker has to be really intelligent. Um, mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you bring in a whole analytics team to, to crunch the numbers on who you should be drafting, who you should be taking, who you should be resigning all this, if they're giving information to a guy who can't interpret it, it's pointless. It's, it's noise. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that, that some of those people can interpret it, but I think that's that's really what it comes down to is, you know, having the, the system to to make the right decisions with all the information you've got. Yeah. And if I don't know, I mean, if you analyze the troubles that they've had 
drafting in recent years. I don't know how much of it goes back to that because I don't think there was a lack of information on these, this bevy of first round picks that have busted out or been hurt or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I don't know how they're, I don't know how anybody gets, get drafted in the first round. Even if you literally just had me sitting in there as the only person running that front office that I would come away, not knowing exactly what I was getting with a first round pick. You're just, sure. they bust out. Um, Maybe in the in the fifth round, yes, I would hope I'm not in there by myself. That's that's where your staff pays off. But I would argue that even as they've drafted poorly in the last, you know, disastrously, arguably in the last five years, that hasn't necessarily been because of a huge fall off in the later rounds. They just have whipped so hard in the first, and it makes Absolutely. it so obvious, and it kills the top of your roster. So you can fill out and you can have good depth, but if you don't have the top end players you're screwed and that's where they've been. And that's why they haven't had any, that's why they've had to go so hard in free agency this past year. Cause they love to draft, develop and, and pay, but they had no one that they had developed that they could pay. So they had to go elsewhere and realize that that's part of the answer because they've draft, they didn't draft well enough. And that isn't necessarily about the later rounds. They didn't have the hits they had earlier in the decade, obviously, but they weren't terrible where they were terrible was in the first round and just continually getting nothing out of those guys or getting negative out of those guys. And so I, I don't know that that's a matter of not having enough people because you know all about the first round guys when you're sitting down that day. That's, that's there's no doubt about that. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that really brings up a good point that, what is free agency? You know, even when you're trying to build a team around the draft, when you you're going to make mistakes and and even if you don't make a mistake, you know, there could be a, a, a freak injury that happens to somebody. You've got to be willing to go to free agency to fix that or, you know, you're going to have what you've had the last couple of years. Now, now, speaking of the draft, all the talk goes to Burrow and obviously for very good reason. But if this was a regular offseason, we'd be talking about this or that other rookie that all of a sudden the coaches are just all over. The coaches are, are, are you know crazy about this person. So outside of Burrow, what rookie do you think could have a big impact this season? What, what rookie do you think would be getting the buzz if we did have a, a real offseason program? I mean, I would assume it would have to be Logan Wilson just because of the expectations and the opportunity in front of him. I mean, they need him to be a starter. And I think they I, honestly, if you asked him right now, I think they expect him to be a starter. Uh, day one is certainly in their nickel package where they're going to be in most of the time, maybe not starter and, you know, as you would see it on first and 10, but um, you know, I think that that position is the most up there. There's a reason they drafted three of them. There's a reason most of them have the, a very similar trait of being athletic and able to cover. Cause they don't have any, hardly anybody that can do that. Um, and that can really develop into a three down linebacker in modern football. And so um, he, Logan Wilson, very good at that in college. We'll see if it translates. But, you know, I think anytime for me, I, I, you know, I look at ability, but I more look at situation and I look at opportunity and no one maybe on this team outside of Joe Burrow will have a better situation or more opportunity than Wilson. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think that linebacker group could be similar to the way we talk about the receivers that, You've got some guys that can do some different things. Now, the three guys they drafted are all very good in coverage. Uh, you know, three of the top, three of the best linebackers in coverage in this draft, in my opinion. Um, but you got Davis Gaither, who really played edge. 
You know, mm-hmm. will they use him a little bit more in the edge like they did with with Vigil at times, with Sean Williams at times last year? Uh, and then you get a guy like Pratt and uh, and Josh Bynes who they brought in who are probably stronger against the run, stronger in the box than all those guys. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Coach Lou Anarumo balances that out and, uh, you know, gets the most out of that group. Yeah, no, you're you're right. That's it's it's arguably the key for the defense, which really supplemented themselves on the back end and up front. But, you know, there's just a lot of hoping on youth happening in the linebacker room. So it's that if if we had had a real offseason and we were tracking anything, there would be a couple things I'd be looking at is is 18 and 28 here. And how do the linebackers look? That was really all that would have mattered over what we were watching in practice. Uh, and so, you know, we'll we'll be doing the same thing come camp. Okay, my guest today was Paul Daner Jr. Paul, where can people follow you and your work? Yeah, uh, on Twitter at Paul Daner Jr. Or you can, uh, of course, everything is at The Athletic with uh, Hear That Podcast Ground, myself and Jay uh, Morrison, who you mentioned earlier. And then uh, we have you know, 400 plus writers with inside information uh, and stories from all over every team. Uh, you get you you get that all under one hood. We have 30 day uh 30-day free trials going on right now. If you want to just come in, take a test run, um, feel free to do so. Um, we, we have all kinds of stuff that you'll that you'll want to read on every team and national writers and everything else. So feel free to come in and take a free ride. And, and if you want to stick around, stick around. We love having you. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Paul. And, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember, if you enjoy hearing from great guests like Paul, make sure you, you subscribe uh, to this podcast on Whatever, uh, whatever you're using to listen to it, and uh, give us a review as well. Definitely helps more Bengals fans to find us. So thank you, Paul, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Who day? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, we're coming forward with sours. Yeah, we're coming forward with sours. You hear the crowd, we're coming forward with sours.